On today's show, the Atlanta Hawks get the first win of the Quinn Snyder era, a nice hold serve kind of victory at home over the Portland Trailblazers. And also on today's show, we'll talk about the Tony Wrestler media tour that happened on Friday. All that and more coming up. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1424 of the Lockdown Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Friday evening into Saturday here in early March. And I want to tell you at the top of the podcast to make sure that you've listened to our podcast each day. Make us your first listen, in fact, each and every day across podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're also on YouTube and anywhere you get your podcasts. And I also want to be sure that you make sure to check out the rest of the podcast from this week. It's been very, very busy the last couple of weeks, really. For the Hawks, from the Nate McMillan dismissal to the new hire, Quinn Snyder, to deep dives that I did with Tower Jones and Glenn Willis in the last few days. And uh, if you're a new listener, first of all, welcome aboard, but also catch up on the backlog. There's plenty to discuss. It's all still relevant at this point in time. And uh, with that out of the way, we'll dive into what is going to be mostly a game breakdown episode as the Hawks get a victory on this Friday evening, 121 to 111. I will say at the end of the show, I am going to talk about Tony Wrestler doing a media tour. The Hawks controlling owner was certainly out there in the media, uh, giving his own personal spin on things on this Friday. And if the Hawks had had a uh, less impressive performance, I probably would have opened with Tony on this podcast, but I promise I'll have that at the end of the show. But for now, we have plenty to discuss with this game itself. It's Quinn Snyder's first victory. He improves to one and one as the head coach of the Hawks, and the Hawks are now 32 and 31 again, above 500 at this point. And uh, basically, what I would describe as a taking care of business kind of win at home. Um, kind of a pretty similar spot, actually, to Tuesday, which I talked about at length at that point where the Hawks lost a narrow game to the Washington Wizards. The Hawks were favored solidly in that game at home. It was one they had to get, and I talked about how you know, nothing's a must-win, nothing's a terrible loss about that, but it was a game that they probably should have won. In this spot, it was almost exactly the same. The Hawks were seven-and-a-half-point favorites, according to our friends at FanDuel Sportsbook, and that was essentially the same number that it was on Tuesday. Uh, but this Blazers team is sort of an outlier. Portland was number one in the league in offense since about mid-January and also literally dead last, number 30 in the league in defense. So a tough team to prepare for in some ways. Damian Lillard is a legitimate superstar, but the Hawks did outplay the Blazers pretty much start to finish in this game. It got a little bit, uh, I would say, not super comfortable in the third quarter, but then down the stretch, the Hawks did what they did, what they sort of failed to do, I should say, on Tuesday. And that was turned a solid lead into a comfortable lead. And that's what they did at the end of the third quarter and into the fourth quarter. And really, it was never particularly competitive down the stretch. Before I get into actually the team takeaways in this spot, I will just say this. DeJounte Murray had a heck of a performance. He was fantastic and the biggest story coming out of the game itself. A career high 41 points for DeJounte, six assists, five rebounds as well. He was 17-22 from the field, 5-5 from three, and 2-2 at the free throw line. He had 23 points on 13 shots in the first half. That matched a career high in any half for DeJounte. And then also, coming in in a bit of amusing fashion, Murray's career high was 40 before tonight, which he also set against the same Blazers team about two months ago on January 30th. Actually, no, less, less than two months ago, you know, five weeks ago on January 30th. So I guess he has the Blazers number this season. You might remember this, but Trey Young has owned Portland in the past as well. Um, I guess the Blazers have some defensive uh, challenges against small guards. Um, it's been a friendly matchup for the guards generally across the league against Portland, but Murray was on fire in this spot. 
really the entire game and really carry them for important stretches. Um, Hawks PR had a crazy stat actually as well that Murray became the first Hawk and only the second player in the history of the league to average, yes, average at least 40 points, all 6% shooting from the floor and 75% from three and 100% of the free throw line against the same team in the same season across multiple games. Obviously, it's hard to do that, and those are some arbitrary endpoints because of the three-point shooting being as high as it was and DeJounte getting in the line and not missing and all that. But kind of just tells you how good he was in these two games. And Murray was uh, you know, a huge factor in this spot. Clearly, a lot of talk about Trey Young always, but DeJounte has been a solid number two throughout the season and a really big performance here for Murray. Um, that led to a pretty strong offensive performance for the Hawks in general. Again, kind of grading on a curve a little bit because Portland's defense is really bad. But a 125 offensive rating is very good against anyone. And outside of Murray, they weren't like perfect or anything like that, but it was still very solid as a team. 57% from the floor in this one and 46% from three. That cures a lot of ills. That shooting is really impressive. Uh, going back to Murray for a second, you know, Quinn Snyder talked about this after the game, but Murray is certainly settled for some quote unquote mid rangers, but Murray's mid-rangers, at least recently, have been more manageable. Those like 10, 12-footers where he gets to his spot, intentionally rises up, and makes that very comfortable look for him versus the traditional long two of like that 18-footer, which is a lot less efficient. Murray has been efficient on those little 10-footers, 12-footers, 8-footers, and he's very, very good in that range. With, with, with Snyder basically was uh, sort of endorsing that as a shot. I definitely agree with that. He's very comfortable there, and it goes to efficient offense. The Hawks have 17 turnovers. That's way too many for what the Hawks want to do, but they had 30 assists, and that sort of offset some of the lack of ball security in this game. Uh, a pretty impressive stat as well in the first quarter. The Hawks had 13 field goals in the first quarter of this game, and they assisted on all 13 of them. Just for reference, the league leaders in assist rate in terms of like percentage of field goals assisted on are like in the 65% range. So 100% for a full quarter is pretty crazy. And uh, that set the tone pretty early and off. So the Hawks were going to be able to move the ball and do so effectively in this game. They were going to the glass as well on offense and uh, generally a well-rounded performance, even if it was mostly led by Murray. And then defensively, uh, about a 109 defensive rating in this game. If you are new to that, fact that, that figure, that would be pretty solid this season. And Honestly, against this Portland offense, even without Anthony Simon, who didn't play this game for Portland, um, a pretty good number you have to kind of take against Portland anytime. Dame had 33 for the Blazers, but the Hawks did create 18 turnovers. They did a good job on the glass in this game and good activity in general. They kept the Blazers well below their free throw average in terms of their creation in this game, too. And uh, some really, really good moments from the bench units defensively. Jalen Johnson, Ayaka Kongwu flying around. Uh, and uh, yeah, just very strong overall. I thought Murray had a better game than uh, he has had in the recent past on the ball defensively. We saw Jalen on the ball a little bit. We saw Hunter uh, have some nice moments on the ball as well. And the Hawks did a generally good job on both ends of the floor in this matchup. Um, so, you know, big picture. Again, we'll, we'll kind of get into the nuts and bolts of the game in a moment after a after a break. But as far as, like, the actual performance itself, this is a game where the Hawks needed to win it, especially with a four-game road trip looming that begins on Saturday with a back-to-back -back, and, honestly, a pretty tough back-to-back against Miami to lose this one, especially after losing on Tuesday, would have been a pretty brutal situation for the Hawks after two practices. And just for the record, everyone talked about how important those practices were. Clearly they wouldn't have been this important without the coaching change, but with, with, with Quinn Snyder now involved, DeJounte Murray after the game kind of talked about, 
and they were designed to be kind of like walkthroughs. They ended up doing a lot more in practice than they maybe thought. Um, you know, offense, defense, install stuff. Um, one, of the, one of the questions that continues to be asked of Snyder and everybody else is like, how long is it going to take to have all your stuff in place? And they can't answer that, but clearly they're trying to get up to speed. Everybody is. Snyder talked about how Joe Prunty has been helping him sort of get the calls right and all that stuff, what, what the Hawks are running. And they're still running a lot of stuff that the Hawks were running before. It's just that they're kind of maximizing what they're capable of, what the calls are. And uh, generally just having a, a much more modern approach, to be honest with you, on offense and on defense. Um, the rotation has been nine guys in both games. It's been very slim and trim. And obviously, Snyder's already making an impact at this point in time. So uh, all good vibes from everybody involved in this one. We'll get into how, kind of how it all transpired in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors on today's podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Nissan, and Nissan's Most Electric Player of the Week is brought to you by the all-new, all-electric 2023 Nissan Aria, and this week's selection is going to be DeJounte Murray. That should not be a surprise to any Hawks fan. The Nissan Aria is brilliantly fierce, fiercely elegant, and suddenly powerful, and they bring an impressive combination of traits to the table. Murray embodies that as well. He averaged 28 points per game this week in three games, as we all talk, talked about earlier on the podcast. He exploded for 41 points and a career-best night on this Friday and a win over Portland to really key that victory for Atlanta and really drive things home for this Hawks team. Nissan Ario is packs, they packs a lot of power, and they will pin you to your seat. And it also has premium intelligence that you're looking for in an all-in-one EV. The all-new, all-electric 2023 Nissan Aria, the EV for people who love to drive. Shop now at NissanUSA.com. All right, we'll move through kind of uh, how this game ebbed and flowed. And really, the Hawks led for the vast majority of this contest. Uh, they were up nine to four out of the gate. Um, but by the way, just defensive matchup wise, I had some questions about what was going to be happening in this game because Portland without Simon is a little bit interesting. They're pretty big on the wings, but also, you know, have Dame Lillard. And ended up being as the primary look, it was DeJounte on Dame Lillard. It was Hunter on old pal Cam Reddish, who was starting for the Blazers in place of Simons. And then John Collins on Jeremy Grant. And then Trey was hiding on Matisse Tybel, which is the right thing to do, generally speaking. Um, the Blazers had a lot of turnover issues in this one, had four in the first five and a half minutes. The Hawks were really good on the weak side, I thought, with Capella and Collins in particular in the early going. And then rotationally, uh, no huge surprises, but there was one, uh, I would say, notable thing. It was bogey for Trey as usual, then Bay and Okongwu. But then it was Jalen Johnson as the ninth man in this game in place of A.J. Griffin. And we talked about this a little bit with Tower Jones. Again, if you missed that podcast, it went up on Wednesday evening. It's a fun conversation. Definitely worth listening to at this point in time. But I kind of floated, you know, Quinn Snyder's comments from the practices before that. And it seemed like they were going to be choosing between A.J. Griffin and Jalen Johnson uh, game for game almost. Because it seemed like the other, two, the other eight guys are sort of penciled in. And they decided, I think uh, – Rightly so, that Jalen was a guy who should be playing in this spot. I've, I've been trying to play both of them, to be honest with you, but I understand kind of alternating a little bit. And Jalen made a, ver- a, I thought, a real impact in this game. And in, I'd say impressively and also notably, with the way the lineups broke down, they played Jalen a few times with uh, Trey, Bogey, and Sadiq Bay, in addition to a center. And that kind of means that Jalen is the best point of attack defender. On the, on the floor in those in those lineups, which is kind of sounds crazy because Jalen's like a legitimate 6'10", 6'11", who's really power forward size, but he is the best perimeter defender of all those guys. You know, Sadiq Bey, not great. Bogey, not great. Trey Young is Trey Young. So it makes sense, but like there were moments where he was guarding Dame Lillard on the perimeter, which might sound crazy, but it really isn't. Jalen is someone who I, don't, I think is probably, um, you know, not the best, like the absolute best against, against a small guard, but is at least capable of doing that. And given that lineup, he should be out there on the perimeter making those kind of point of attack decisions. 
Um, as for AJ, he got into the game at the very end in garbage time um, to keep his consecutive game streak alive. AJ's now played in 54 straight games. He hadn't had a DNP since November the 5th. He was well on his way. If the Hawks had not won this game as comfortably as they did, he would not have played in this game. Um, and that's okay. I, I do think that um, I'd be trying to play AJ, but he's had sort of the rookie wall at this point in time, as Quinn talked about earlier this week. And I think it's okay to give him a night off. Um, I would be trying to keep him up to speed for sure. I think his future is extremely bright. And you want to play him. But given where they are now, if they're at full strength, which you can't necessarily rely on every single night the rest of the season, but if they do have full health, it is okay with me to give AJ a night off in this matchup. And we'll see if he ends up playing more as they go to Miami and in Washington this week. But uh, yeah, almost had his uh, consecutive game streak blocked at this point. There's a fun sequence late in the first quarter where Bogey actually blocked two shots in a row. And then it was a, a reverse dunk that was beautiful from, from a Kongwu. And then in the floor to go up by 13 points. And the Hawks basically led... I don't know, for the rest of the way at that point in time. Um, the Blazers had, had, were 6-20 from the floor in the first quarter. That, that definitely helped. Again, the Hawks assisted all of those buckets in the first quarter, and all nine guys scored in the first period. Um, Snyder talked pregame um, some about some observations about players, and kind of one of them was about a Kongwu, quote, repping it out, end quote, from three in practice. He did say on the record into a microphone he did not necessarily expect it to be happening tonight in the game, but coming – out of a timeout in the second quarter, Snyder, it seemed like live, drew up a play for a Kongwu, and then it was later confirmed to be the case. They drew up a play for a Kongwu to shoot a three, and he shot it and made it. It was his only attempt of the game, so it wasn't like they were like super emphasizing that, but it was a cool moment. And also, after the game, uh, Quinn kind of just laughed it off and said, look, you know, he's been trying to work that out in practice, wanted to give it an, him an opportunity, and that's just a little coaching moment that certainly is a good thing moving forward. Onyeka's not ready to be a bomber at this point for three-point range, but we've been seeing flashes for a while. His mid-range game looks good. His touch is really good. And even going back to the draft process, like I talked about it then, I know the Hawks did too. Like They think he's going to be able to shoot long-term. We'll see. But uh, obviously, it's, it's kind of a small thing. It's only one shot, but they drew up a play for him. That, that, that does matter in the course of a competitive game, and he made it as well. A couple of nice passes from Jalen Johnson in that stretch as well. They're up by 17 in the middle of the second quarter, and it looked to be kind of a comfortable point at that at that stage. And I will say the worst little uh, hiccup of the entire game was late in the second quarter. A 13-2 run by Portland. A couple of bad possessions, honestly. Three turnovers in like four possessions in a, in a row. Um, they had a bad mid-ranger from Pacific Bay as well. I will say there was some officiating questions in that stretch. Uh, John Collins had a charge that should have been a three-point play that was overturned. A couple of, uh, I would say, tic-tac fouls on defense, generally speaking. But they were able to sort of withstand that despite foul trouble because there were three fouls on Bay, Bogdanovich, and Collins in that first half. But um, Trey got going a little bit late in the quarter. And then uh, Murray was, again, just brilliant in that first half. 23 points on 13 shots um, and kind of held the Blazers down for the most part defensively. Um, kind of a ragged start. In the third, but Capella had, a, had his best rush of the, of the third, uh, of really the game, I thought. Had back to my buckets in the middle of the quarter. I forced a timeout by the Blazers. One of them was uh, candidly an awful pass by old pal Cam Reddish. But the offense was really going in the third quarter, but the defense kind of wasn't. That was the worst stretch of defense in the game early in the third quarter, but they gave up 20 points in like seven minutes or so. Do the math on that. It's not great necessarily. And the lead was down to nine with about three minutes to go in the third quarter. But then Trey Young, who hadn't had a great game to that point, um, really found it for a little bit of time. He had a trio of three-pointers, three in about two minutes to give the Hawks some separation. I had just noted on Twitter that the Hawks were kind of in the same range they were in against, against Washington when they kind of failed to create that separation, and it kind of cost them at the end. Uh, but the Hawks did not have that same problem in this game. The lead went from uh, nine up to 21 with a 17-5 to run in about three minutes, and that really put the game away. 
Uh, Portland had one little mini run in them in the fourth quarter after uh, Murray got 39 points. The lead was down to like 17 with five minutes to go, but really never got particularly close. And uh, by the time the two-minute mark actually arrived, they were able to step away and uh, enjoy that with some bench clearing and uh, a pretty comfortable win and followed by a, a concert. And it was kind of, you know, just one of those uh, festive atmospheres down at Save Our Marina. Uh, we'll get into kind of the way the players uh, sort of broke down this game now. And we'll save the Tony Wrestler stuff for the very end of this podcast. But as for the bench, it was some really good signs in general, and they were really good performances. Again, you can't rely on the bench to just be this electric all the time, but it was very, very solid here. By the way, I will just kind of overlook Griffin and, and Aaron Holiday, who played two minutes, shrug on that. But uh, Bogey didn't have a great game, but had seven points and uh, on nine shots, two assists, had, did those two blocks in a row, was plus 13. He was just kind of out there. He had a couple of good games before this, so uh, no worries there, but he was just kind of uh, okay-ish. Uh, Jalen, I thought, was really good. Eight points, four assists. That's a very nice figure for him. Four rebounds, had a steal, plus 18, and uh, four six on the floor. Really active in transition. That's something that Quinn Snyder praised him for before the game as well. And uh, good to see him sort of not having any sort of rust or anything. He hadn't played in a few days, obviously, after having the DNP on Tuesday. And uh, he was uh, flying around in a very, very encouraging fashion. Uh, Sadiq Bey had seven points on eight shots. It was 0-3 from three, but uh, three or five on twos. Um, three, three rounds, two assists. I think defensively, as we discussed with Tyler on the podcast on Wednesday into Thursday, it's still pretty rough, but he had, he just had that, uh, had that value of being able to uh, sort of space the floor and be guarded and give the, the extra room to the perimeter guys for the Hawks. And then a Kongwu, uh, seven points. They have three steals and a block in this one to go along with his uh, four turnovers is a little bit weird for him. I'm not sure what happened there, but three or five from the floor and one of one from three. I don't think he was fantastic, but he was certainly pretty good. Him and, him and Jalen Johnson have a nice chemistry together. That's been the case for a while now, and they did, they, they did a lot of great work in their um, stretches of play. To the starters, um, Collins and, and Capella kind of had weird, quiet games. Not, not terrible, but not great either. Collins took four shots in 23 minutes. Obviously, this is not anything new. His role is so small now for you know myriad reasons, going back to McMillan and all that stuff. I don't know if there's a plan to break him out of that, but he was relatively quiet in this game. I think defensively he was very important and very solid, but offensively just didn't do anything wrong, just had six points on four shots. Was very quiet. Click uh, Capella, 11 points, 12 rebounds. Had a steal and a block. A couple of nice highlight plays on the, on the defensive glass and around the rim. Had a big block and came reddish at one point, um, sort of a meet-you-at-the-rim kind of thing for Clint. I thought he was fine, just didn't have the uh, huge runs that uh, Kongu and Jalen had. Uh, DeAndre Hunter had a really rough first half. It was better after halftime. 17 points on 14 shots for DeAndre, four, four rebounds and an assist. Um, you know, two turnovers is fine for him. He was plus one in 32 minutes. Uh, he and Murray were only got to play more than 29 minutes in this game because of the uh, comfortable state of play. Uh, Trey. We'll go there now. Uh, 23 points, 11 assists, seven rebounds, two steals for Trey. He was a game best plus 25. He was on the court for that bench run in the first half that was just Trey plus bench. That was very, very effective. Um, only three of nine on twos, but eight of eight, of eight at the line and three of five from three. I thought Trey got it going in a big way after that first quarter, uh, first quarter and a half kind of lull, and uh, he was quite good after that. Wasn't his game like you know? Obviously, this was a, a more of a Dejounte game, but I thought Trey, especially those three threes, really kind of put the game away in some respects in that little stretch. But we were very valuable, and then defensively, he competed. I thought in this game, uh, and then Murray again. We talked about him earlier, and also we're talking about Nissan and the Nissan Aria, which is a fantastic product, as I will say again. But uh, forty-one six five for Dejounte, and uh, he can't make every shot like that. Uh, my friend Glenn Willis shared his shot profile. A um, lot of uh, you know shots that you don't necessarily shoot that well on all the time. But Murray's a tough shot maker, and uh, you know he had it going from three in this game. 
and uh, you know, 12 of 17 from two, it was very, very effective. And uh, he had a, a night to remember at the very least. Okay, before we get off of this podcast and uh, talk about a little bit more of what's gonna, what's to come coming up with the back-to-back actually on Saturday and also get into Tony Wrestler stuff, a word from our sponsors on the podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious treat at this point here in March, but you don't want all of the fat and calories to go along with it, Built Bar is a fantastic option for you. I know a goal of mine in 2023 was to eat healthy. I'm trying to do all right with that at this point in time. Built Bar is a huge part of that approach, and Built Bar is really perfect to blend that taste as well as the health aspect. They have a ton of awesome flavors with Built Bar, including my personal favorite, which is cookies and cream, in addition to place, uh, flavors like peanut butter brownie and coconut almond. And they have 100% real chocolate on the outside. Built Bar tastes like candy bars. They have 130 calories and 4 grams of sugar to go along with a whopping 17 grams of protein. And you don't have to wait around to get a box that you're looking for right now with Built Bar. For a long time, I'm going to tell you get the Built Bars that you're looking for at Built.com. That is still an awesome option for you if you're trying to uh, peruse the entire catalog of Built Bar. But if you want to get them right now, your local Sam's Club or Walmart have them in stock. It's right. Walk into Walmart and grab a box of Built Bars right now or go to Sam's and get a 13-bar box immediately. And uh, that's definitely a good way to invest in Built Bars. Make sure to check out Built Bar no matter where you get your Built Bars at this point in time and dive in today. All right, and before we look ahead to the week that is to come and a four-game road trip for the Hawks, it begins on Saturday. Uh, an interesting kind of out-of-nowhere media event on Friday. Uh, Tony Wrestler, the Hawks controlling majority, however you want to say that, owner, the, the face of the ownership group, the lead decision maker in the franchise, um, he gave four different interviews to outlets on Friday. Um, I'm, it kind of came out of nowhere. I will say if you read the Jeff Schultz of the Athletic interview, he kind of sets the context for that. Uh, I guess, you know, he and, and Wrestler had an, had an exchange um, earlier this week that's uh, notable. I definitely re- recommend reading all of this stuff. You know, the four interviews, just for the record, were ESPN, Adrian Wojnarowski, which came out first, and then it was Lauren Williams of the AJC, Jeff Schultz of the Athletic, and then also it gave a 12-minute interview to 92.9 The Game in Atlanta, the radio station. I will focus on that a lot because I was able to listen to the entire thing, whereas, yes, there was printed Q&As from Lauren and Jeff, but I was not there. I didn't actually hear that. Whereas 929, it's just there for all to see. It's definitely it's available if you, if you want to listen to it right now, you can find it. And uh, I will say also, it definitely recommend re- reading all of it, especially the Q&As from Lauren and Jeff. Um, sort of the back and forth there is very interesting. Now, for those of you not in Atlanta that may not know this, 929 is the flagship station of the Hawks. So they had that partnership together. It's a relatively friendly atmosphere, obviously. And the interview basically started with them giving the opportunity to kind of just open the floor up to have Tony kind of say what he wanted to say. So that's uh, obviously a pretty friendly meeting atmosphere, but still um, I'll go, I'll kind of go through my, my takeaways, my highlights of all of this stuff. A lot of it was repeated. I'll say that at the very top of this wrestler had his talking points. He was going to share what he wanted to share. Uh, a lot of the uh, words that were being shared. I think the biggest uh, repetitive thing was the uh, notion of better communication and collaboration uh, with this new front office versus uh, Travis Schlake. He didn't really use Travis's name other than with Jeff Schultz, um, but it was certainly the implication that that was improvement with this new group. Anyway, uh, with 92.9, Tony opened up by saying that the simple answer as to why he uh, moved on from Schlank and kind of overhauled things and now with Quinn Snyder is that, he, is that he, quote, thought our basketball operations could be run better than it was, and I thought we could have far better communication and collaboration, which, of course, would lead to far better decision-making, end quote. And he also said that he thinks the front office now is, quote, running much better than it ever was, end quote. And uh, basically, the way that he frames it is that the front office with Landry and Kyle came to him. They wanted a coaching change, and he, quote, embraced it entirely, end quote. Um, that's one little segment. So from there, 
uh, about basketball decisions. One of the one of the topics that's been out there for the last little while is like who's making the decisions in basketball operations for the Hawks, whether it's Tony, whether it's his son, which came up a few times in this uh, in this media array, whether it's uh, you know obviously Landry now or Kyle, and uh, the way that Tony kind of put it is that he put he put it all on Landry at this point in time. Um, quote. My job is to put the best people possible in charge of both business operations and basketball operations. And another quote here, our front office has made every meaningful decision made by the Atlanta Hawks, which I have challenged and embraced ultimately. Our senior professionals make all of our most important basketball and business decisions. End quote. That's what he said on 929. With the AJC and Lauren Williams, he said the following. I've never overruled the front office. So I don't know. My job isn't to overrule. My job is to challenge and to make sure you have people in charge that make good, that make good decisions. And if you don't think... The good decisions are coming and happening consistently. You have to change senior management, which I did, end quote. Now, here's my first pushback, and I will try to be careful with what I say here, but, you know, some stuff uh, I, don't, I don't just agree with him saying out loud, honestly. And honestly, this is one of those things where I, I just don't think this is true based, uh, based on multiple reports across multiple years, what I've heard consistently, what he's even said at times on the record in previous years. I think Tony has, um, at least in the past, not always, but certainly has in the past overruled decision makers. I think that's kind of been out there. Uh, he's admitted in the past that he's been kind of a meddler and kind of been someone who's been involved in decisions. And look, he said on the record a few different times that the buck stops with him. That's the, that's the right thing. You know, he's the owner. He's the owner of the team, and uh, clearly he has the ability and every right to make any decision he wants to with the Hawks. Now, I, I don't think that it's really reasonable to, to suggest that he has you know, never overruled the front office uh, based on what I have heard and what's been reported out there about how involved he has actually been. If you want to get into semantics, you certainly could frame that argument. And I think Tony probably did that in talking about this kind of stuff, but that, that's one thing that I didn't necessarily, uh, you know, didn't sit with me fantastically just because I think that's probably not true based on what I've heard uh, and what's been reported. Candidly. Okay. From there. Uh, he was asked a few times about Nick Ressler, his son, which for background, there was multiple reports dating back to uh, after the Travis Schlenk um, dismissal or, you know, jettisoning, jettisoning, however you want to say that, that Nick Ressler, who's Tony's 27 year old son, who has a, he has a role in the front office on paper. But um, basically, there's scuttlebutt that he's been more involved than he probably should be based on his title and experience level and uh, that he has a huge voice because he's the owner's son. Anyway, uh, he was asked on 929. If Nick, if Nick has any decision-making power? And he said, the simple answer is no. Okay. Uh, then later on in that interview, he said, I think my son is doing a fantastic job, but he also said that it's disrespectful. That's the word that he used to the GM, assistant GM, to speculate on Nick being a decision-maker. Uh, he came back repeatedly to the collaboration and communication emphasis that I talked about earlier. And then with the AJC with Lauren Williams, I'm going to read the quote to you now. This is probably the most interesting uh, revelation there about, about Nick. He said, and I quote, I fully acknowledge for whatever it's worth, that my son, who I'm so proud of, is doing a great job, has a voice in the organization. But by no means does he make any of the decisions. Again, when I don't give an interview about what happened, it seems people create things, and I'm trying to put those to bed. So the simple answer is, Nick works in the organization, helps me in both the business and basketball operations, helps me understand the goings-on of the organization, if you will, helps me evaluate what we're doing, but he sits in the same role that I do. He's in ownership, but is full-time to the organization. So the simple answer is no, he's not in charge of the decision-making. Our GM and assistant GM and our prior leadership was in charge that our current leadership is in charge now, end quote. So it's kind of an interesting answer. Obviously it's a little bit different than a normal employee because he is the son. And even Tony says there, like he's in, he's in ownership despite being a full-time employee of the Hawks. It's a very interesting sort of nuanced thing there. No matter what, uh, it's, it's challenging to be sure. Uh, also, 
Jeff Schultz had an interesting exchange, you know, he's speaking about what kind of changed with Travis Schlenk and basically asked him what was different after wrestler gave Travis a big deal and a big extension after the conference finals run and basically fired him or dismissed him or jettisoned him after about a year and a half. And essentially after talking about the collaboration and communication, once again, that was a theme from all of this stuff. I'm going to read a little bit more to you here. Could we have real communication from the front office to the, to the front office, to ownership, to the coaching staff, to the players? Did that exist? Obviously, I didn't think so. Did I work with Travis to try to be more inclusive? It's a fair assumption that I did. Today, it exists beautifully. I don't mean to be defensive and I don't want to be aggressive, but I thought our front office, front office could run better. I think we can say that since the Eastern Conference Finals run, we have not been ascending. Nobody would dispute that. He did, he did wish Travis well and said that there was legitimate criticism of ownership to give the extension and then move on that quickly. But he then referenced the team having a, quote, meaningful lack of greatness, end quote, in the results that led to the decision. So I'll put a point on that. Um, the Nick Ressler thing, obviously, he's not going to come out and say Nick Ressler has a huge voice in the organization is making decisions. I, I don't think anybody's reported that Nick Ressler is like making the decisions. It's more of like he's very, very prominent, involved. I've heard that so many times that it's hard to dismiss at the same time. Um, there's nuance there and we'll kind of probably never know how big the emphasis actually is. And it is not a surprise to anyone that he would deny that Nick is like being a decision maker. Um, as for the rest of the framing, uh, it's pretty critical of Travis in a lot of different ways, which is not a huge surprise. He's not there anymore. And when you move on from a guy, you're probably going to be incentivized to make it look like the the grass is greener. Um, obviously, Travis had his faults, and I talked about that a lot, but he also did a lot of good things. The draft record is what it was. He built a team that's been a, you know, been a playoff team the last several years. He was the architect of that. Um, anyway, it was pretty stark to me. Like Tony was had sort of on message trying to turn the page and focus on the future and really, really praise his current setup. And uh, it seems like he certainly had it in his mind to deliver that collaboration and communication message, implying that they did not have that same message under Travis. Okay, uh, next thing on the agenda is the luxury tax. And look, I have been kind of banging this drum for a while. I'll say this now. I don't think that the Hawks have no explanation for not paying the tax this year. Now, hear me out. I think that they made themselves worse by avoiding the tax this year. But there's been a sort of misunderstanding of what I've, what I've said about the tax in the past. And it's that essentially... Russell has been saying for a long time that he's willing to pay the tax uh, on, on the record several times. And I think that they made moves this summer and into this season that were clearly cost cutting moves that made the roster worse. Now you can debate what, how much they, how much those, those moves mattered. There's this whole side debate about how Kevin Herter's career is going to go. None of that matters in this conversation at the, at the moment. Would that have been better with Kevin Herter? Obviously. Yes. Would they have been better with DeLon Wright if they had tried to pay him money when they had his full bird rights? Yes, they would be, etc. So roles, none of that stuff matters. My point is they have said one thing and done another. Now you get into sort of the money quotes of the day from Tony Ressler. Clearly there's been a lot of smoke and there'll be a lot of tension paid to what he said about the front office and the new the new setup with Landry and Kyle and what he said about his son and Travis and all that stuff and his, his own leadership style. But here we go. Quote Tony Ressler on the radio today. I've never in my life suggested we make a trade to get in or out of a luxury tax. So there, be, there, there should be no confusion, never, end quote. He went on to say that he is, quote, delighted to be in the luxury tax for the right reasons, end quote. He also says, I'm prepared to go into the luxury tax whenever our senior most professionals think it's a good idea. Anything to the contrary would be untrue. 
unquote. Okay, so there's some semantics here. I've I, Some Hawks fans pointed this out too. I had the same thought. Um, I've never in my life suggested we make a trade to get in or out of the luxury tax. Is that an interesting way of framing that? Um, could that mean that he's saying that specifically because he just said, look, Travis, or look, Landry, we want to get under, and I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but I'm not paying the tax. That's probably more likely what happened than Tony saying, we must trade player X to get under luxury tax. I think it's much more a, hey, lead decision makers, Travis, now Landry, I'm not paying the tax this year. Get under somehow. There you go. Anyway, the way I framed it on Twitter, and I'll say this now, it's sort of sarcastic, but it's also true that it seems like a bizarre coincidence that every move the Hawks did in the last, you know, six, eight, nine months, just kind of happenstance put them under the tax. Front office personnel. So, you know, some if you are anti-Travis, let's say, and pro-Tony, you might, I saw someone that says to me actually today, like, you know, so, so you're telling me that Travis Schlenk did all this on his own. Uh, generally speaking, front office personnel don't cost for their own enjoyment. Like, it doesn't do anything for Travis to avoid, avoid the ledger tax. It's not his salary that's going out. And also, I literally asked Landry Fields at media day before the season about the Hawks being having the 15th roster spot open on the podium, and he indicated they were leaving it open for financial flexibility, which essentially was tax reasons. He admitted that on the record on the podium. Now, did that mean that he had a mandate? Maybe not, but I, I think it's, it's kind of strange credulity that Tony Ressler uh, did not um, let's just say, lead the charge of not paying luxury tax this year. Here's some more examples, and I won't go on all every rabbit hole here, but the Hawks did not just trade two draft picks to get Garrison Matthews and Bruno Fernando. They did it to get far enough under the tax so they could take on Sadiq Bay without going into the tax. And that doesn't even count the harder trade. Put the harder trade to the side if you want to. I, I wouldn't, but because that was clearly a cost-cutting move, but put it to the side if you want to. The more Harkless trade, they traded more Harkless, who they got as part of the Herder deal for Vic Krejci expressly to save money. That's the only reason that deal happened, very obviously. Or they also didn't make a real offer to DeLon Wright. I talked about this a little bit with somebody the other day. Look, I'm not telling you DeLon Wright is the greatest player of all time. I like DeLon Wright. It's, it's kind of a meme at this point. But the Hawks didn't make him a real offer. And they had, they had his bird rights. They had no restraints other than money and luxury tax to pay DeLon Wright to, to get him to stay. And by all accounts, they didn't really make a competitive offer to the lawn right. There's little things. Anyway, it's not one thing, but it's it's kind of insulting to the intelligence of people who can see the transactions that they made to suggest that they have no mandate to go under the tax this year. And look, to be clear again, there are arguments against going into the tax for this year in particular, especially if they do plan to get into the tax later on. I thought I talked to someone very smart around the team today that said this. Like, I'm not I'm not disputing that at all. I, if that was the plan. If the plan was to stay under this year to open yourself up to avoid the repeater tax and go into it more later on, that actually makes sense. But to say that he has never directed the team to get in and out or in or out of the tax seems fairly ludicrous to me because he's the only one that would care about going into luxury tax. It's his money. Let's say one more time here that you give him the charitable view and say that it does make some level of sense to stay out of the tax now to go in later on. He could just say that. It's a very rational explanation. And that's if that's what it is, then that's that's a very easy thing. And honestly, I wouldn't pile on that. Would I make note of the fact that they're probably made the team worse this year? Yes, but I would be giving them a lot less heat if that was a coherent, explained plan. But instead, he said something that 
pretty easily is disprovable. Like, it's just one of those things, like, it, it's a PR thing. I think Hawks fans are starting to figure this out now, where, like, you know, you can say one thing, and you know, it's kind of the same framing. It's like, if for the right reasons, for the right opportunity, we'll go into ledger tax. I've always been in believe it when I see it mode. But even I, I've never said that beyond this season – that I think they definitely won't go in. They, they certainly could. If the Hawks are winning that next year and they need to go into the tax, because by the way, they're already into the tax right now for next year if they have Bogey on the roster, that's plausible to me. I've never ruled that out. All I said, dating back to June of this last year, was that the Hawks were not paying the tax this year, which the Hawks did not pay the tax, and they had to get creative to stay under it because I was just hearing over and over again they weren't going in the tax, and they never did. So it's one of those things where like I don't think it is reasonable to suggest that the ownership leadership, which is Tony Ressler, uh, never made any comment toward avoiding the tax. That just doesn't make sense at all. Okay, before we get out of here, some overall thoughts. Again, Tony, I think to his credit, to wrap this up in a more positive sense in some respects, his frustration level about being 500 and kind of you know underachieving and actually wanting to win, I buy. Tony Ressler is competitive. Now, you can sort of make the joke about luxury tax stuff, but I do think that Tony, while he might be emotional, and reactionary in a way that you don't necessarily love as your owner, he does want to win. I, I believe that. You don't get to where he's been without wanting to win on some level. I think he does have frustration about where they are in the standings. He, 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 did, he did say, I think, multiple times that they could and should be better than they've been so far. He's optimistic because of the new structure and all that stuff, but certainly uh, I do buy that he is frustrated and they want to win. Because, look, there's been lots of internal pressure that I've, I've talked about and reported on about how – the Hawks have these conflicting messages. Like, let's just use John Collins as an example. One of the reasons why they have not traded John Collins is because Tony Ressler and the leadership have told the front office they don't want to take a step back. And a lot of the avenues for trading John Collins over the last two years, no one deal, but a lot of the discussions have basically been, it would have been a lot easier to trade him if they were willing to get worse in the meantime. And I kind of have said multiple times, like, most of the deals that you ever see for John Collins make the team worse. And that's one of those sort of conflicting things. Now the Herder trade made them worse. So maybe they were willing to do that. Um, maybe that was, you know, with Murray coming in, they kind of saw that it was more plausible. Uh, it wasn't quite, quite as, a, as much of a direct hit, but I do believe that he wants to win. And I do believe he's competitive. And I think he is maybe reactionary, but still someone who always is invested in having the team win. And I'll say this. This is not the first time that Tony's done a media tour, at least a mini media tour in some respects that says he's hands off and then the basketball folks make decisions and he's willing to pay the tax. And then he changes all that behind the scenes at times. Um, is it possible that it could be true moving forward? Sure it is, obviously. But I can't bring myself to like just ignore the history on this one and the intel from how he's operated and in the past and for, even from the recent past. So I heard from some fans like, look, even people that are more plugged in that they're like frustrated by these comments. And obviously just the way that he kind of talks down, I, I definitely recommend the Schultz interview in particular, because Jeff pushes him in a way that Jeff Schultz does. And I, I think it was a really good interview by Jeff. And I know not, not every Hawks fan loves Jeff Schultz, but like uh, he has cachet. And I think he's probably the only person in the local media that would have pushed him in that, in that same exact way. And I was, in, I was intrigued by that. And Tony comes off as being defensive in that interview. And I get why he's kind of being pushed, but um, you know, the answers are not really all that coherent at times. Um, kind of just the fact that there's, there's some talking down to, and it's, it's not always believable. If you kind of look back at every transaction, if you're really a diehard to kind of take the comments at face value, I can't tell anybody how to feel about this, but it did certainly ring hollow to me in some respects. Um, I'm not like a fan anymore. I cover the team as a media member, but if I was a fan, I put myself in that shoes. I was, you know, it hasn't been that long since I was a fan of the Hawks and the season ticket holder, all that. I would not be happy right now with any, with this whole, barrage now 
On the other hand, at least, at least on the comment side, on the other hand, you're very happy about Quinn Snyder. You're very happy about this investment. And by the way, Tony's paying Quinn Snyder a lot of money. And that's, that's good from ownership um, to overhaul your franchise and have a real coach that you know, is a top eight guy in the league for me. That's really a nice thing to have to happen to see. So it's it's always nuance here, and nuance is kind of dead in some respects. But I think it's uh, very very intriguing to kind of talk through that. Um, it kind of ignores you. It kind of tells you to ignore the past when you go through these transcripts and kind of taking it at face value because I do think Tony is involved in basketball decisions. I do think that there are questions about the luxury tax this year. I think flatly they avoided the luxury tax by the direction of ownership. So. That conflicts with what he said. And, you know, it is what it is. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the one that's crazy. But uh, that's it's my obligation and my responsibility to say what I think. And, and I always do on this podcast. It's, it, people, I'm sure, will be mad at me on both sides of this. And that's kind of how it always I'm sure I'm not going to call from Hawks PR. It is what it is. But uh, anyway, that's my wrap up on that. And again, one more recommendation. Just you know, listen to me. I would listen to 92.9 if I was a Hawks fan. I would listen. I would read those transcripts of the Jeff Schultz column, of the Laura Williams column. And also even of what Woj was a little bit more straightforward. It wasn't a straight Q&A. But the fact that Ressler talked to Woj, the national number one newsbreaker, is interesting too. That's something he normally does. Like every once in a while, probably once a year, maybe twice a year, he'll talk to the AJC, he'll talk to the Athletic and kind of do like a Q&A sit down. That's not out of the ordinary. But for him to do this in on March 3rd, uh, during se- during the season was notable, and I think it comes out of you know just trying to you know correct the record and maybe some PR spin. But that happened today. It was pretty interesting, and that's why I spent a bunch of time on it at the end of this podcast. In fact, it's a very long podcast by my standards on a Friday night. So my apologies for that. But my long windedness will uh, hopefully not get me yelled at too much. Okay, last thing on the show: the Hawks do play four games now away from home after being at home for like three weeks straight. If you wrap around the All Star break, they go to Miami on Saturday for a quick turnaround. It's a back-to-back. It's an 8 o'clock tip-off, so a little bit more extra time there to get settled in Miami, but certainly have to, have to fly down there. That's that's going to be a challenging game. The Heat are not unbeatable by any means. I'm pretty low on the Heat this year. But Miami uh, played at home tonight, so it's a back-to-back for them as well, but with no travel. Advantage Miami on that on that front. And then they play Miami again in a mini-series on Monday, and then they play two games in Washington. So division games, four games in a week, and, uh, you know, big picture, if the Hawks can go three and one, that'd be great. Um, I think a split Miami is what you're kind of aiming for. If you could steal both, obviously you want to steal both. But I think the Hawks will be underdogs probably in both games, and at least at, at tip off, so that you can't really uh, just plan on winning both of those games. And then Washington, some revenge factor from the loss on Tuesday. And the Wizards, that's a very winnable, those are very winnable games on the road. We'll see if they can sort of function there. Uh, the first road trip with, with Snyder and all that stuff. But a back-to-back, and I'll have a full podcast, as I always do, after the show on sorry, after the game on Saturday, please subscribe to the podcast. If you're a new listener, you chose a interesting uh, avenue to uh, enter on the podcast because I don't usually do 15 minutes of Tony Russell talking at the end of the podcast, but there we are. It was a very busy day on this Friday. I am probably delirious late into the evening now, but please subscribe to the podcast. Please tell a friend about the show. Follow my Patreon, patreon.com slash BT Roland. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Hawks. Follow me on Twitter at BT Roland. One more plea here. Subscribe across platforms, Apple, Spotify, um, Stitcher, overcast also youtube likes comments all that fun stuff is appreciated and please take a second if you enjoy the podcast to tell a friend or two if you have a hawks fan friend in your life please share it with them hopefully they will enjoy it if not that's okay too but have them give that a chance i really really appreciate all of the support and all of uh, everything else and listening and watching it really does not go unnoticed and i am deeply grateful for all of that all right everybody enjoy your friday evening into saturday and i'll see you after the game on saturday